Fathers, we come before you now to reflect on your word and reflect especially on the gifts that you've given us in uh, this thing we call the, the sacraments. Um, we ask that, that your blessing would be upon us, that your presence would guide us. Um, we pray that, that in the mystery uh, we may find you as we spend these next few weeks uh, reflecting on the mysterious ways that you interact with us, uh, the way that, that you describe yourself to us. Uh, help us to grasp what you would have us to grasp and uh, to be comfortable trusting you uh, when we can't understand everything. Be present with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There's an element of mystery in all good storytelling. Um, in every great story, there's some compelling unknown that builds suspense and pushes the reader or the, the hearer or the viewer to want to know what's going to happen next, to find out how some circumstance or, or some strange phenomenon is going to be resolved or explained in the end. For example, how many of you here have ever watched the show Lost? You can admit it. It's a good show for the most part. Um, so Emily and I kind of got hooked on this show during our vicarage, and uh, there's a lot of questions that come up. You know, uh, why is there a polar bear on a deserted tropical island? Or um, who are these others, and where did they come from? Oh, wait, there's a submarine? This show is just one mystery after another, to the point where in the end, um, even the writers didn't really know what to do with it. Of course, while there's an element of mystery in all good storytelling, there's a whole genre of story called mystery. I'm sure many of us here are fans of Sherlock Holmes, whether the original stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or one of the film adaptations since, either starring Iron Iron Man, can't even say it, or um, an actual, you know, British actor. Um, Others might prefer the classic mysteries of Agatha Christie or the tales of Edgar Allan Poe, which really kind of began the genre in the first place. Well, whoever the writer, usually mysteries are mysterious because we don't have all of the information yet. And the intrigue is to piece together all of the details until you have everything figured out. But an interesting thing happens at that point. For all practical purposes, the mystery ceases to be a mystery. If you grab a P.D. James book and you open up to the back and you read the last chapter first, you'll lose almost all of the mystery and the suspense that the story would have held for you otherwise. So today, we're starting a new series here at Connect where we're going to be looking at four mysteries of the faith, four mysterious, mystifying gifts and promises and truths that God has given to us. And as we do that, uh, we'll start in our reading from Ephesians chapter 3. So there, Paul introduced this, this concept of the mystery of Christ. And we find that this mystery is a different kind of mystery altogether, For one thing, uh, what could be more mysterious than God himself? As has been said many times and and in various ways, uh, once we get to a point where we think we understand God, it's not God we're talking about any longer. As the great hymn says, he is immortal 
invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. The true God is high above us. His ways are not our ways. In the the church where I grew up, uh, out in Oregon, we would do the intro it every week. And uh, one verse that that happened again and again in the intro it uh, was this verse from Romans chapter 11. Could we read that together? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Yet, this great mystery of God and his eternal will, which Paul describes in our text from Ephesians as having been hidden for ages in God, has been revealed to us through the face of Christ. The manifold wisdom of God has now been made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was reading a devotion earlier this week, um, and it said this, God's hiddenness is close to the greatest mystery of life. But this is the greatest mystery, that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So in a way... The mystery of God in Christ has already been solved. The key players and their roles have all been revealed. The end game has been uncovered. The plot of the great divine whodunit, so to speak, has been unfolded. And yet, unlike with most other stories, this does not rob it of its mystery, but enhances it. Rather than spoil God's grand story, Seeing him and knowing him in Jesus makes it all the more possible for us to embrace him and stand in grateful awe of the salvation that he has worked for us in Christ. But the divine majesty of God on beautiful display in Christ, though it may be, still presents us with a little bit of a problem. He is still God and we are still not. His plans are still inscrutable and beyond our figuring out. How can we have any meaningful relationship with such a God, this this all-powerful spiritual being that that wields a power that we cannot even begin to imagine, that, that rules the entire cosmos and the entire universe? The answer, as we've already said, is of course found in Christ, God himself who came down to earth and took on human flesh and won our, our freedom and our forgiveness. But how exactly does God then give these things to us, these, these things that he has won for us? How can we lay a hold of them? How does our eternal and immutable God bring his gifts to bear in this here and now flesh and blood world in which we live? These questions bring us to the first of the four mysteries of the faith that we're going to be looking at in our series The sacraments. Now, as you might remember learning at some point, uh, a sacrament is instituted by Christ, involves some sort of a physical element, and comes with a, a clear and distinct promise of the forgiveness of sins. And so the, the two sacraments, baptism and holy communion, are called means of grace. They are the means 
by which God has promised to convey his grace and forgiveness to us. The sacraments, you might say, are how Jesus actively loves us and delivers his gifts to us. The same God who cared enough about us to send Jesus to be incarnate for us, to take on our flesh and blood, still desires to relate to us in real and physical ways. The sacraments are those ways, and the sacraments are all about Jesus. They bring spiritual realities, spiritual gifts, God's spiritual presence down to earth. In the sacraments, God engages your senses and shows you that he is not just some spiritual being that you must ascend to intellectually or or emotionally or mystically. Rather, he is the one who comes down to where you are in the true body and blood of Jesus, in the simple but saving water of baptism. And in doing this, he chose to use bread and wine, you know, the, the staples of the ancient Near Eastern diet. He chose to use simple water, the most basic and essential necessity for survival that there is. In your sermon outline, if you haven't taken a look at that yet, maybe pull that out. It's, uh, an insert on the back, there's some things for you to take home and reflect a little bit more. But in your sermon outline, I've described the sacraments as tangible touch points with a spiritual God. And uh, I was surprised as I was typing this phrase out earlier this week that spell check uh, told me that uh, touch points was not a word. And let's see, can we get back to that slide? Somehow we jumped around a little bit. Thank you. So I was told that touch points was not a word. And, you know, it's not often that I, I cross swords with spell check, but I felt this was, you know, I felt I was right. So I went to the dictionary. Uh, to see if if I was right, that touch points was a word. And I'm very happy to report that I was right and spell check was wrong. A rare victory there. Um, But what I found there was interesting. The first definition listed for the word touch point is a commercial term. um, And it said this, a touch point is any point of contact between a buyer and a seller. Now, at first glance, this definition really has nothing at all to do with the sacraments because uh, we have nothing with which to buy what God has to offer. And thanks be to God that he doesn't have it for sale either, but gives it to us freely through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. But this definition is helpful in that it assumes a, a regular interchange between one party and another, the place where the two come together for mutual benefit and profit. Now, although we don't have anything to offer God but filthy rags, as the prophet Isaiah says, God has everything to offer to us. We heard that invitation in our gospel reading from Matthew. Now, would you read this with me, these words of Jesus? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the sacraments, these tangible touch points with our spiritual God, we come to him, and even more so, he comes to us, and we find rest for our weary souls. What an invitation that is. Speaking of invitations, uh, it's getting to be graduation season, and maybe like our family, you've been receiving uh, invites to various graduation parties that are coming up. Now, in today's world, it's becoming increasingly common to send out these sorts of invitations digitally through Facebook or email or something like that. 
Uh, this year, it's been kind of interesting. We've gotten a number of, of digital invitations, and then a few days or a couple weeks later, we've actually gotten a paper invitation for the same event in the mail. Now, I don't know if this is true for everybody here, uh, but for me at least, there's almost this sense that if I'm invited uh, via Facebook, then that's really cool. You know, I'm invited. But if someone has taken the time to address an envelope specifically to my house and has sent me a tangible invitation that I can hold in my hands and, and put up on my fridge, I'm invited, and I know they really want me to be there. Well, in the same way, if God's interaction with us was purely on the spiritual level and that's it, cool. But it is so much better than that. The sacraments are physical, tangible indications of God's desire for us to be with him, to find rest in him. And along with the word of God, they are the place where God has promised he will be found, the place where he brings us into his great story. And yet, in all of this, we must not lose sight of the fact that the sacraments, tangible though they may be, are themselves mysterious. Throughout the centuries, the sacraments have been primarily referred to by the church as mysteries. The word sacrament is actually sometimes used as a translation for the Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our mystery, our word mystery from. At one point, Paul tells the Corinthians, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of of God. And the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, this massively important document in the Lutheran Confessions, reminds us that these mysteries that Paul is referring to are the gospel and the sacraments. And so the sacraments, at one and the same time, both allow us to interact with a spiritual God, this mysterious God that comes to us in these ways, while at the same time remaining mysteries themselves. So we should treat them as such. The sacraments are where God has promised he will be found, but he will be found there only on his terms and not our own. And here's where I'm going with this. Uh, Over the centuries, especially the the last few centuries, uh, some have attempted not really to embrace the mystery of God found in the sacraments, but to unravel it. Instead of taking God at his word, uh, when he promises that in baptism our sins are truly washed away, that baptism is not about us publicly proclaiming our faith with, with great pride in our hearts, but it's about God actually doing something in us by his spirit. Instead of believing that Jesus actually uses baptism to save us, some have reduced baptism to a symbolic act taking the focus off of God and placing it squarely on us. Instead of trusting Jesus when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and believing him when he says that when we receive communion, we receive the forgiveness of sins, some have made this precious gift of God to be out out to be only a, a sign or a representation. When you reduce the sacraments to mere symbols rather than the holy means of grace that the scriptures so clearly declare them to be, you are missing out on their power, their divine intent, their gifts, and their mystery. 
trying to harness God's mysteries or take the edge off for our own purposes or our own rational comfort is ultimately an ill-advised attempt to domesticate the transcendent God. To explain the sacraments to our reason's full satisfaction will inevitably lead us to explain them away. Now, it's natural to ask, how can water do such great things? Or how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? And in fact, Martin Luther asked these very questions in his catechism. But the key is to let God's answer be our answer instead of making one up on our own. These precious gifts that we call the sacraments are mysteries, not meant to be explained away scientifically or metaphorically, but rather to be grasped and held onto and treasured and believed. Earlier, we heard Jesus pray, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is God's gracious will to reveal his mysteries to those who are willing to embrace them with the faith of a child. Did you like how beautifully our kindergartners displayed their faith today? Did you see the sense of mystery and and awe in their eyes and in their voices as they shared God's word with us? Thank you for that, boys and girls. You see, God's not asking us to be foolish or to ignore the gift of reason or the mental faculties that he's given to us. He's simply encouraging us not to become too smart for our own good. He's inviting us to realize that sometimes embracing the mystery is actually the most surefire way to arrive at the truth. Just like looking at an abstract painting that at first glance doesn't seem to depict reality in any way, might end up giving you the deepest of insights into the true nature of things that you couldn't have arrived at in any other way. So, what does this all mean? For one thing, it means that, that if you haven't been baptized, maybe come talk to me about that or, or look, you know, find somebody sitting around you that you know and, and ask them, what does God offer here in baptism? It means that if you have been baptized, don't take that for granted. <laughs> But live in it daily by repenting of your sins, by living out the life that God has given you. It means that next week when you come up for communion, know that here you are confronting and coming face to face with Jesus in his true body and blood given for you. All of this means, above all though, that God has loved you enough to send Jesus as a man to die and to rise for you and to come and to care for you and forgive your sins in tasteable, touchable, tangible ways. Next week, we're going to get into this a little bit more um, as we switch gears a little bit to talk about Christ's ascension and especially his promise to come back and to raise your body from the dead, which is a promise that Paul introduces by saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. In the meantime, may the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.